I trust that you'll continue to be in prayer for the services this morning. I certainly desire your prayers as I make this effort to speak to you. This week being the week of Thanksgiving certainly should have stirred our minds up on being thankful, especially to the Lord for all that he's done for us. And uh, this morning I'd like to actually speak to you from a passage in John chapter 5, but I'd like to begin in Psalms 100 in verse 3. Now Psalms 100, to me, of the 150 Psalms, is one of the most delightful Psalms that there is. It has five verses in it. It tells us very simply and clearly why we should be thankful. In the third verse of this Psalm, he says, Know ye the Lord, He is God. Now that's something just to pause on just for a moment. Know ye the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. That's a very simple statement, isn't it? Simple truth, but glorious truth that so many of God's people don't even know. It is He that made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture if you can't see election and all that, <laughs> you need to study Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 1. Know ye the Lord, He is God, it is He that made us and not we ourselves. Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, under good works, which we should walk therein. Okay? So know ye the Lord, He is God, it is He that made us and not we ourselves. We are His people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Now with that truth, that, that understanding says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It says, for his truth, you know, endureth forever. It says, his, he, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth all generations. His goodness and his mercy and his truth are brought to our attention here. Now, no less than ten times in the Psalms, it starts off with this expression, O give thanks unto the Lord. And five of those ten times is followed by this expression, for He's good. It's just that simple. The Lord is good all the time, and He's all the time good, isn't He? So, you know, we shouldn't have to wait for a particular day or a particular week to have the subject of Thanksgiving impressed upon our minds. Every single day when we are blessed to get out of the bed, and our feet hit the floor. We can just turn around and see we had a nice bed to lay in, a nice pillow to put our head on. We can go to the closet and open it up and this morning put on a suit of clothes. Go to the kitchen, there's food in the refrigerator and food in the pantry. Fix a nice meal. And then turn our attention to the Lord and His worship services, His church and kingdom, and come here to meet the Lord's people and meet the Lord in His house to worship Him. I mean, we need to think about that daily, on a regular basis. Certainly every Lord's Day, you know, and be thankful for that. And that doesn't include so much more far beyond that. So those thoughts in mind, I'd like to go to the fifth chapter of John. Take a look at the life of a man that was highly blessed on a day when he perhaps was not anticipating it. The Gospel of John is an interesting book to me of the four Gospels. So we see that God deals with individuals and multitudes at times uh, and teaching them lessons of which in the beginning they feel like he's teaching physical lessons instead of spiritual. You know, in the first chapter of John, we find him interacting with Nathaniel. 
In the second chapter of John, we have the Lord being invited to a wedding and his disciples with him. We find his first miracle where he turns water into wine. In chapter 3, he interacts with a man named Nicodemus. In chapter 4, he goes to Jacob's well and interacts with the Samaritan woman. In chapter 5, he's going to deal with an impotent man. In chapter 6, we find where the Lord does the miracle where he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and just two fishes and delivers that wonderful discourse in him being the bread of life. We come into chapter 7 where he deals with him being the water of life. But chapter 8, he deals with the case of the adulterous woman. Chapter 9, the blind man. Chapter 10, the good shepherd chapter. In chapter 11, he deals with Lazarus, raising him from the grave. In chapter 12, in chapter 13, he washed his disciples' feet. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, we find where the Lord delivers a farewell message, you might say, to the disciples. Chapter 17, we have the Lord's high priestly prayer. Chapter 18, we find the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then chapter 20, we find his crucifixion. Chapters 21 and 22, we find several appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection and then his ascension. That's just a little brief overlay, you might say, or review of the Gospel of John. So we come here to chapter 5, and it begins, it says, and after this. Now sometimes John will use this expression, and he'll use a similar expression, saying, and after these things. That's kind of common with John. In fact, seven times in John's Gospel, he'll begin in this manner, after these things, after this. It seems like he's setting a timetable for the Lord. Like the Lord knew exactly, of course, and of course the Lord did. Know where he'd be every single day. The Lord didn't have to ponder the night before he went to sleep. Well, let me see, what can I do tomorrow? Where shall I be at tomorrow? Maybe I'll try to do this and try to do that. The Lord knew exactly where he was going to go. He knew exactly who he was going to interact with every single day. And so we have a little timetable here, it seems like, after this, after this. Now, in Matthew, the word then, T-H-E-N, is a word Matthew uses a lot. And then Mark uh, speaks about uh, immediately. That's the word he uses a lot. Uh, so each of the gospel writers, have, there's a word that kind of associates with them. That if you pay attention, you'll, you'll see it. And then not only does John use this after this seven times, but in the book of Revelation, he uses this expression nine times. So after this, or after these things, notice here he says, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told what this feast was. By studying the Old Testament, we find that there were three annual feasts that the Jewish people were required to go to Jerusalem to observe every year. There was the Feast of Pentecost, there was the Feast of the Passover, and there was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I don't know which one of these three it was. And since the Lord chose not to tell me, I should just leave it there, right? See, a lot of the Lord's people are trying to figure out what the Lord doesn't say more than they try to figure out what the Lord does say. You ever notice that? People say, well, I, I wonder about this. I wonder about that. And they wonder about things that the Bible is not going to give you any information about. Just not going to do it. Our human mind, our curiosity, you know, that's how it operates. So we need to be focused more and spend more time in studying what God has said rather than trying to figure out what God hasn't told us. If he didn't tell us, there's a reason for it. So there's a reason. I don't know what the reason is, but there's a reason why we're not told which feast this is. It's just a matter of fact. There's a feast in Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to go up to Jerusalem. Now he's going to go up because it's the time of a feast. And the Lord Jesus Christ kept the law to a jot and to a tittle. The Lord here 
was born among the Jewish people. He observed the laws God gave to the Jewish people in the Old Testament day. And the Lord kept it again uh, perfectly, entirely, totally, completely. And so since there's uh, been a feast of the Jews, and the Lord's going to go up to Jerusalem at this time. The Lord was always where he was supposed to be. The Lord was always in the right place at the right time. And I've, I've tried to make this a goal of mine, to be in the right place at the wrong time. I mean, excuse me, be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I've had enough experience of being in the right place at the wrong time. i tell you that now. You know, always a day late and a dollar short, that kind of thing. But it's important to be in the right place at the right time. Now, this morning, I can tell you, you're at the right place at the right time. You are. You're right where you need to be, right where you should be. This day, the Lord's day, the first day of the week, you're right where you need to be. I can't think of any other place that you could be that would be preferable to the place in which you're at here this morning. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, generally speaking, we read about Jesus coming down more than we do about Jesus going up. You know, John 6, 38 and 39, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. That's where Jesus came from. Jesus was in heaven, and he came from. He left a place called heaven and came down here to this earth in which we live. While he was here on this earth, as he came down to this earth, we find where the Lord at times sat down. He sat down on the mount there in Matthew chapter 5. You know, and the great multitudes were there, and Jesus went into a mountain, and his disciples followed him, and he sat down, and the Lord taught them there. We find where the Lord knelt down. Remember that in John chapter 8, when they brought the adulterous woman before him, and the Lord knelt down. And while he knelt down, he wrote something in the sand. We find the Lord laid down. That is, he laid down his life in John chapter 10. And then, of course, thankfully, we read about where the Lord did go up. He went up back into heaven, right where he came from in Acts chapter 1, right? But here we find where the Lord, who had come down from heaven, now he goes up to Jerusalem. Anytime, no matter where you're at, if you were not in Jerusalem, and you went to Jerusalem, you went up. Jerusalem was the holy city. Jerusalem was the chosen city of God. Man didn't choose Jerusalem. God did to put his holy name there. And so the Jewish people... I knew that this city was a special city, the, the holy city, and in this city was the temple. And that's where the sacrifices was made. And so now, at this particular time, after this, or after these things, we find where it says that there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture here, in these in this uh, uh, situation where the Lord is going to deal with one man here, just about every word, every verse is very important. There's no insignificant words in the scriptures. There's not one single word in the Bible that's used there for filler. I can remember a number of years ago where Reader's Digest came out with a condensed Bible, and their selling point was, we've gone through the Bible and took out all the filler. We've gone through the Bible and took, taken out all the unnecessary words, all the insignificant words, just like there are insignificant words and necessary words in the Bible. That shows what the wisdomous world is all about. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the, the world by wisdom knew not God. That's an example of that right there. In their opinion, there was just a lot of stuff in the Bible that was just unnecessary, just taking up space for nothing. And so they read it for us and took it all out so that we can read it in a lot shorter period of time. 
<laughs> I can tell you there are no insignificant words in God's word. Every word is there for a reason. Every word, even the smallest words. Like the word so, S-O, that's one of the most important words in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It shows the degree of God's love. And we can give a lot of other examples here this morning. But here, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, and the word market there is a supplied word by the King James translators. But it's uh, pretty clear, I think, it's talking about the sheep gate. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had been introduced by John the Baptist in John 1.29 as the, you know, Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, in Jerusalem, at the sheep gate, that's where the sheep was brought in that was going to be for the sacrifices. The Jews had a morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice, and the lambs, the sheep, had to be brought in for the sacrifice. And, of course, as you go back to Exodus chapter 12, we find there had to be a male lamb, the first thing of the flock, without spot, without blemish, and they had to come through the sheep gate. Now, you read about the sheep gate back in the book of Nehemiah chapter 3. And you can read about ten gates there in Nehemiah chapter 3. And you might think in the beginning, as you read through those gates, well, this is just, uh, you know, just information here. And it is information, but it's information for you to pause and take note of. I can assure you, each one of those ten gates point to the Lord Jesus Christ in one way or another. But it starts off with the sheep gate. And it works through the ten gates. And then it comes back around referring to the sheep gate again. So you make the complete circuit and you come back right where you started off, right there at the sheep gate. The Lord Jesus Christ is that Lamb of God again, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ would be examined very closely by men, but he will be examined by God the Father. And therefore, when the Lord Jesus Christ, as a Lamb of God, lays down his life on Calvary, I can assure you he passed the test. He met all divine specifications. For sin to be put away, there had to be a perfect sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice. And the Hebrew writer tells us that Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. In every way, Jesus passed the test. I couldn't pass the test. You couldn't pass the test. Are you without blemish? Are you holy and undefiled without blemish, separate from sinners? I think not. You would never pass the test. You could not pass the test of God's specifications. But Jesus Christ did, thank God. So it's very interesting here that at this uh, Jerusalem... Uh, there at the sheep market, the sheep gate, we find where the Lord is going to come to this, situ uh, to this uh, place here where there's also a pool which is called the Hebrew tongue Bethesda having five porches. The word Bethesda literally means house of mercy slash house of grace. <laughs> Beautiful name, isn't it? There are churches, you know, who have that name as their name, like Bethesda Primitive Baptist Church. There are churches that have that type of name. And they picked that name from this story right here in John chapter 5. It means a house of mercy. I love that kind of expression. I believe this is a house of mercy. This is a house of grace. This is a house where mercy is proclaimed and grace is proclaimed. It's a house where people who feel the need of mercy can come and receive it. People need the need of grace and come and receive it. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Aren't you glad you got a throne of grace this morning? Aren't you glad mercy and grace is available this morning? Aren't you glad there's not a shortage of mercy, not a shortage of grace? Uh, get ready for the toilet paper shortage again. It's coming, brother. <laughs> it's already here. Uh, shelves are empty. I don't understand what that's got to do with the coronavirus. But nevertheless, people are stocking up. 
<laughs> I'd rather stop up, stop up on hamburgers and hot dogs myself. But anyway, there's no shortage in mercy, no shortage in grace and glory. Never has been, never will be. So he comes to a place called Bethesda, the house of mercy, the house of grace. And Bethesda's got five porches to it. Number five is a very interesting number in the Bible, and that's not our subject matter this morning, but just maybe a, a few little samples about it. You know, if you go back to the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 25, you'll find where God gives instructions for the tabernacle. And he gives the blueprint for the tabernacle. And if you study all that, you're going to find that the number five is a dominant number in that construction of that tabernacle, the blueprint. Five and multiples of five are there in terms of all the dimensions of the outer court and the inner court the holy place, the most holy place, etc. You go back to the uh, book of 1 Samuel chapter 17, you're going to find where David went out to fight Goliath, and he went down to the brook. And how many stones did he choose? Well, I'm sure you all got that one, right? He chose five smooth stones, of which he used one. You'll find in Matthew chapter 4, where Satan... It's confronted the Lord Jesus Christ as Christ has fasted for 40 days. He goes on top of the mountain. And we're going to find where he is confronted by the devil. And you'll find where the Lord defeats the devil by going to one of the first five books of the Bible. Just like David chose five stones, he used one smooth stone to slay Goliath. And the Lord Jesus Christ used one of the five stones of the first five books of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. And he slew Satan with it. He answered Satan three times, all out of the same book. And showed by the truth of that book right there, that what Satan was proposing was satanic. It was, of course, uh, as his adversary. Abraham, in the book of Genesis chapter 15, you're going to find where God is promising Abraham that through him and his seed all the nations of the earth should be blessed. Enters into what we call the Abrahamic covenant. At this time, his name is Abram. has not yet been changed to Abraham. And you'll find where he tells Abraham to take five different animals, five. He was to take a heifer. He was to take a, a goat. Uh, he was to take a ram. He was to take a turtle dove and a pigeon. These five animals, he was to divide these five animals in two, lay them aside, and then we're going to find where he would walk through them. And that night, we're going to find where uh, the Lord walked through those animals with Abraham in a burning furnace to ratify this covenant he was going to make with Abraham. And then he's going to change Abram's name from Abram to Abraham by putting an H right in the middle of it as far as our English reading is concerned. But in the Hebrew, it's H-E-Y. And that's the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's not just by accident, brother. So his name is changed from Abram to Abraham. When Joseph was dealing with his brethren down in the land of Egypt, you come to Genesis chapter 43 and you'll find where Benjamin finally is brought down to Egypt where Joseph's at. And you're going to find where Joseph's going to feed his brethren. But the Bible says he gave Benjamin five times more messes. Now that's a word, you know, that's not used too much anymore. I'll take a mess of that and I'll take a mess of that. You come to the table on the farm, you say, I'll have a mess of butter beans. You know, you're, you're wanting a, a portion of it. You don't hear that expressed anymore. But Benjamin got a mess, but he got five times. Now, there are some people I say they're a mess. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> he got five times more than the other brothers did. And then Joseph gave him new clothes. And the Bible says he gave Benjamin five changes of raiment. 
The other brother didn't get that. What I'm trying to tell you is that number five is a number of grace. It's a number of favor. Joseph showed favor to Benjamin. God showed favor to Abraham. He showed favor to Israel in the blueprint of that tabernacle there. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ would feed, what, 5,000. That miracle is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. He'll feed 5,000 men besides women and children. He'll feed them with what? Five barley loaves and two small fishes. There were ten virgins divided in two groups, five wise and five foolish. Five is throughout the Bible. It's a number that symbolic of God's favor and God's grace. And here you come to a place called Bethesda. There in Jerusalem, that the sheep market, a sheep gate. It's got five porches. It's called the house of mercy and the house of grace. And you're going to find the Bible describes the people that are there and why they're there. Now notice this carefully. And then these lay a great multitude of impotent folks of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Impotent folks. That means people with no strength, people with no power. That's man's by nature. You read a, a situation here, what man is apart from God, what man is away apart from Christ. You find this picture in other places in the Bible. You go to the book of Isaiah, for example, in chapter 1, where we find the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says, my people doth not know their master. He says, the ox knows his master. But my people doth not know, they don't consider. And it says, uh, and their, their, their mind and their heart there's no soundness in it. It says their whole mind and their whole heart is faint. It says from the sole of their foot to the top of their head, there's no soundness in it. Notice from the top, very bottom of the feet to the top of the head, there's no soundness in it. Their mind, their heart is faint. That's their condition. It was their condition apart from God, apart from Christ. So here is a lot, a multitude of people. We don't know how many, but a multitude sounds like a lot to me. Here's a multitude of people in this place, and they're described as impotent people, people without strength. Look in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6 here, and you'll find it says, where Paul said, For when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, when he says without strength, that doesn't mean we were just weak. You know, maybe you've worked hard in your yard all day long, you mowed the grass, you trimmed the shrub, you put out the mulch, this, that, and the other, and you come in, and you feel like you can only put one foot in front of the other. You're just wore out. But you still got enough strength to take a step, don't you? Yeah, you don't have the strength you started out with, but you still have some degree of strength. But that text in Romans chapter 5 means you had zero strength. When we were yet without strength, what happened? Christ died for the ungodly. That's why we're without strength. We're ungodly by nature. He said, for scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God committed his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us when we were good. He didn't die for us when we were righteous. He died while we were sinners and the ungodly, when yet we were without strength. That's what the word impotent means. You have no power. You have no strength. That's all going to change. Now this expression, wherein there lay a multitude of impotent people, is a general description of all those that was there. Then he gets a little more specific. He says, there were some that were blind. 
There were some that were maimed. There were some that were hot. Blind is pretty, uh, you know, clear to understand that. They had no vision. And those that were hot, uh, they were crippled, couldn't walk. And the maimed were those that were paralyzed, couldn't move. I mean, this is a sad sight, isn't it? But that's a, that's a view of Israel, actually, when Jesus came. But it's a view of mankind apart from God and apart from the grace and mercy of Christ. But the omnipotent one comes on the scene. Now he says, there lay a great multitude of infinite folks, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now this is obviously a, a, a supernatural, divine intervention, healing of God that took place in that day. Here's the pool of water. The people were gathered. I don't know how they all got there, but they're there. And the first one into the water. After the angel comes down from heaven and troubles the water, that one is healed. Now, God can heal in any manner that he wants to. In this situation right here, this is how, the, how it was. This is, if you can visualize this, get it all in your mind, get a view of what we're talking about here. Here are people in bad shape, right? They're in bad shape. They're waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel came down a certain season and he troubled the water. And the first one in after troubling water was healed of whatsoever disease he had. It didn't make any difference what it was. He was healed of it. There was no failure here. So without question, this is a supernatural situation we're dealing with here. And a certain man was there which had infirmity 30 and 8 years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been there now a long time in that case, he said to him, Will thou be made whole? Is a man with infirmity of 38 years. The Bible says when Jesus saw him. Now don't you know that Jesus saw everybody else? Don't you know that he saw everybody that was there on this occasion here? But see how personal this is, how direct this is. When he saw him, just like he saw Nathaniel. Go back and read chapter 1 in the book of John. You got where Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, We have found him, talking about Christ, of whom Moses and the prophets did write. And Nathaniel's response says, Well, what good thing could come out of Nazareth? Because he said, We found him, Jesus of Nazareth. What good thing could come out of Nazareth? He says, Come and see. Sometimes that's about the best thing you can tell people, uh, rather than try to go any further, well, just come and see for yourself. Most of the time, it's when you see something that's better than being told anyway. So just come and see. That expression is used frequently in John's God. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ used it a little earlier than that. So he says, come and see. And as Nathaniel's coming, the Lord says to Nathaniel, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. The word guile meaning hypocrisy. How did the Lord know that? Because he knows all things. He knows all people. He knows our minds. He knows our hearts. He says, here's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. No hypocrisy. And when he said that, Nathaniel says, How knowest thou me? That shocked him. That surprised him. How knowest thou me? And the Lord said, When thou was under the fig tree, I knew thee. You know, the fig tree plays a pretty good role in the four Gospels. Well, throughout the entire Bible, as far as that's concerned. Uh, Brother Rick's got some, a fig tree producing pretty good figs. He's brought me some of them. <laughs> but I read in the day of Jeremiah where there was a fig tree, and the Lord gave Israel a lesson of the fig tree, where some had good figs and some had evil figs. But anyway, he said, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. You were under that fig tree over there. 
And I saw you then. When you didn't see me, I saw you. And upon this revelation, Nathaniel says, Behold, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Here we're going to find the Lord approaches the scene. And the Lord saw him lie there and knew all about him. He knew his name. He knew what he had. He knew how long he'd been there. He knew everything there was about him. But apparently the man didn't know Jesus. I mean, he didn't recognize Jesus, is what I'm saying here. Apparently he'd never been where Jesus was, never heard the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus appears on the scene. And I know that because when he responds to what Jesus said, he addressed him as sir. He was very respectable. But he didn't say Lord, he didn't say Jesus. And the Lord, when he saw him lie there, this teaches me the omnipresence of the Lord and the omniscience of the Lord, and knew how long he'd been there. Now Jesus is going to display in a minute his omnipotence. Right here we see the omnipresence of God and the omniscience of the Lord. The Lord has never been acquainted with anything. The Lord has never learned anything. The Lord asked many questions, but it never was for information, not for his sake anyway. So the Lord's going to ask him what seems to be a puzzling question to me. Notice what he says. When Jesus saw him lie and knew he'd been now a long time in that case, he said to him, will thou be made whole? You might think, well, of course, that's why he was there. So why ask that question? I think the Lord asked him that question just to bring to him attention to him, to bring his attention to himself, to realize what he stood in need of, and to see his condition completely and totally. Oh, he knew he'd been sick. I mean, he was sick. He knew he'd been there, had this disease for 38 years. But when he said, well, that'll also be made whole, it just magnifies the fact that he was not whole and needed to be made whole. So he asks him the question. And then we notice the answer. The impotent man. Now, to start with, he described as a certain man, but now he's referred to as the impotent man. But this impotent man has been asked a question by the omnipotent man. Revelation 19, 16 says, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And then I like over here in the book of 1 Kings, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, where it says, Who in his own time shall, who, shall show who is the only blessed and only potentate. The word potentate means of supreme authority. That word potentate and the word omnipotent is used one time apiece, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 5, 15 and 16, and Revelation 19 and 16. The omnipotent one is here. The, the one who has all power in heaven and earth is here. The great physician is here, and he wasn't invited to be here. They're not anticipating him. They're not looking for him. He's just, as far as this man is concerned at this point, he seems to be a stranger. And the Lord asked him a question, wilt thou be made whole? And we notice his answer. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another stepped down before me. To me, this shows his attention is on man and on means. A lot of God's people have their eyes on man and on means rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I have no man. That expression, no man, is pretty interesting in the Bible. Jesus said in John 6 and 44, No man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. 
Aren't you glad there's an exception to that first part of that statement? For no man can come to me. Why does the Lord just stop there? No man can come to me. That'd be a sad, sad truth, wouldn't it? And it is the truth, but Jesus give us something else to go along with it. No man can come to me except, here's an exception. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him and I'll raise him up again the last day. I'm an exception. You are an exception. Everybody here this morning is an exception, right? By nature, you would never go to God. You'd have no desire to go to God. You wouldn't have any life to go to God. You have a desire to pray to God, read the Word of God, talk about God in any way whatsoever. It's only after you've been drawn with the marvelous, miraculous, amazing grace of God, brother, that you have that desire in your heart to come to the house of God, to read the Word of God, to pray to God, and be with the Lord's people. No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. The reason you're here this morning is because sometime in the past, in your experience, God has drawn you by his grace and brought you out of a state of death and sin to a state of life with the Lord Jesus Christ, put a hope within your heart, gave you a divine nature that can cry out to God, a divine nature that's made you realize and recognize that you are a sinner, unworthy to even be in the house of God. Can you relate to that? Can you understand that? <laughs> I believe you can this morning. If you'll just simply, honestly, sincerely examine your experience, you just have to come to one conclusion. Salvation is of the Lord or salvation is not at all. Salvation is from first to last. Salvation from beginning to end. It's got to be all God or nothing at all. Thank God there has been an exception for every member of God's family out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people a multitude that no man can number as many as the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad God makes an exception for every single one of them? Because if he left them in their natural state, they would never come to him. Except, I love that word except right there. I love it. No man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him and I raise him up again at the last day. The omnipotent Lord has come on the scene. We see his omniscience. We see his omnipresence. He saw him. Yes, he saw everybody else. He saw everybody else. He knew everybody there. He knew how many people it was. He knew all the, about, about them to be known. But he comes to one person. This shows the sovereignty of God. So I said, Brother Lawrence, why didn't he heal them all? It wasn't his purpose to heal them all. He didn't have to heal any of them. He didn't have to heal this one. But he did. As you will see here in just a moment, the man is focused on men and means. He says, I have no man, no man. You remember when Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John on the sermon on the, I mean, excuse me, uh, on top of the mountain of transfiguration? And when he takes them on the mountain of transfiguration, he's transfigured between two other men, Moses and Elijah, great men, right? As far as men's men are concerned, great men. Moses and Elijah. Uh, Moses represent the law and Elijah the prophets. Great men. And Jesus appears between these great men right here. What's Peter's problem in the beginning? What's Peter's problem? He said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Okay, so far so good. Let's build three tabernacles. Uh-oh, not so good anymore. Let's build three tabernacles. What's his problem? He sees men when he doesn't need to be seeing men. He needs to see a man. He needs to see the man. 
and he see a certain man. He saw three men. He should just saw one man, the man in the middle. So he says, let's build three tabernacles. That would indicate he's going to put these two men on the same level, the Lord Jesus Christ will bring Jesus down to their level. And that's the problem many of God's people have. They see man highly, you ought to see him. And he sees God down lower than you ought to see God. If you see man any higher than the very dust of the earth, the worm of the, of, of, of the earth, my friends, you see him too high. If you see God any lower than being the God of the creation, the God of all the universe, and see him sitting upon a throne, looking down upon this earth as a footstool, you see him too low. To get the greatest view of God, you need to get down as low as you can get. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and sitting upon his throne and his train did fill the temple. That train, just like the, the, the you know, a bride coming down, down the aisle and her train follows her as part, part of her apparel. And so what's the apparel of, of God here in Isaiah chapter 6? It's his glory. I saw the Lord high lifted up when? In the death of King Uzziah. Uzziah being a good king until the very end. I know there was sadness, no doubt, when King Uzziah died and the report got out. The king is dead. King Uzziah is dead. What are we going to do? The king is dead. We did what he needed to do. He did what I need to do in times just like we're going through right now. I know a lot of people are unhappy. A lot of people are discouraged in the present day circumstances. I won't go any further than that. I know they're discouraged and they're downcast. One thing and another for various reasons. And this coronavirus can get you down in a state of depression. But I'm telling you, I don't care what the circumstances are. Every single day you need to see the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. There were the seraphims. They had six wings and two covered their face and two covered their bodies and with two they did fly. And then they had a message. What was the message? Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. A holy for the Father, a holy for the Son, a holy for the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. No doubt, with a view like that, Isaiah must have been encouraged. I tell you, when I have a view like that, it's nothing to get me down. I just don't always look up like I need to. <laughs> but if I look up and see that kind of picture of my omnipotent God, I'm telling you one of the most glorious verses in the Bible is found in the book of Daniel. When the king, after he came to himself, after being driven off his throne, an earthly throne, out into the field where he ate grass like the oxen, his hair grew like bird feathers, his nail grew like bird claws. Here's what he said. When he was in that kind of condition, you can't get any lower than that, I don't believe. I mean, here, at one day, he's the king sitting on his throne with power and authority uh, and, uh, you know, and, and all kind of recognition. And the very next moment, he's not on the throne anymore. He's down there in the pasture. He's moving the ground, eating grass like the oxen do. His hairs grew like bird feathers, his nails like bird claws. When he came to himself, he said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. That's man's depravity. They're reputed as nothing. But God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or saith unto him, what doest thou? Aren't you glad that's in the Bible? <laughs> God works his will. God's got a will. God works his will among the army of heaven. There are all the angels that make up his army, my friends, are there in submission to God. 
He works his will among the army of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or saith unto him, What doest thou? What a statement of the sovereignty of God. What a statement of the omnipotent power of God. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. If you don't see him high and lifted up, you're not seeing the view that God wants you to have on any day of your life. This omnipotent Lord is on the scene. This omnipotent Lord asked him to question, will thou be made whole? And you see, he's talking about no man. <laughs> no man. No, he's looking to man. I like to do a contrast sometime between no man and this man. Especially the book of Hebrews. You know, in Hebrews chapter 3, he starts off talking about Moses and all. He said, but this man, talking about Christ, hath more honor than Moses did because he that built the house hath more glory than the house. You come to chapter 7, he's talking about Melchizedek and how, what a wonderful figure that is. You go back to the book of Genesis, start reading about him in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, king of peace. And uh, you, you find that he's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in many different ways. So Paul's talking about Melchizedek when he comes to Hebrews chapter 7. But he says, but this man, <laughs> when you compare it to Jesus, you compare it to this man, no comparison. No comparison. Further on in Hebrews 7, 24, he's talking about Christ and being compared to the Levitical priesthood. And he says, the priesthood continued on from the standpoint when one man died, another had to take his place. He died, another had to take his place. But he says, but this man, because he liveth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Nobody's going to follow Jesus as a priest, I tell you that, because he's not going to die. But this man, because he hath an unchangeable priesthood, continues forever, and is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. That sounds like it's pretty solid there to me, don't you? That sounds pretty solid. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, but this man, when he made one offering for sin, he did what? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I wish I had more time to talk about this man like this, but we're going to move on a little bit here. But compare no man with this man. This man is looking at no man instead of this man. See, what happened? Let's go back to the mountain of transfiguration just for a moment. When Peter said, we'll make three tabernacles, a voice rang out from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. When Peter looked up, the Bible says Peter saw no man. <laughs> he saw no man. He had better vision there, didn't he? He got 20-20 vision in a hurry. He saw no man. When it comes to our salvation, you see no man. You see this man. When it comes to the grace and mercy that we need, my friends, you see no man. You see this man. And so here he talks about there's no man. But he's talking to this man. This man that can do something for him. When Jesus saw him lie, knew they had been there a long time. In that case, he said to him, Well, thou be made whole. Seemingly a strange question. What other reason would he be there? <laughs> but he brought his full attention, I, I believe, here to his helplessness and also to the helplessness of everybody around him. And then the no man statement. The infinite man answered him, Sir, I have no man. When the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I'm a com coming, another step is down before me. What a sad, sad picture here of humanity. Selfishness. 
Jesus said in him, he's going to tell him three things. He says, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. I just imagine, what could that man have thought of when he hears these words? Rise. Jesus is not going to put him in the water. He said, I have no man to put me in the water. Well, Jesus ain't going to put him in the water. He don't need to put him in the water. He just says, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Something he hadn't done in 38 years. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. <laughs> and on the same day was a Sabbath. Now, when you study this, you'll see this is the beginning of the sufferings of Christ because he did that which was just unthinkable as far as the Jews are concerned of healing somebody on the Sabbath day. Jesus knew it was a Sabbath day. He arrived on the Sabbath day. He understood their thinking about the Sabbath day. And that didn't stop him from doing what was right and doing what was good on that Sabbath day, did he? Immediately. You notice when Jesus healed people, uh, he didn't do it in stages, right? When the Lord healed somebody, they were just healed immediately. Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. Reminds me of the man that his four friends brought him where Jesus was to a house where Jesus was at, and the house was full. Couldn't get in the door, so they just went on top of the roof and took the roof apart. You know, it wasn't a roof like we have here. It was, uh, you know, made out of uh, straw and thatch and things like that. And they tore a hole in it and let the man down through that hole right there in front of Jesus. The Bible says when Jesus saw their faith, when he saw their faith, not only the faith of the man that was on the bed, but the faith of the man who brought him there. He had the right kind of friends, didn't he? That's the kind of friends I've wanted to have all my life. I want to have friends that will do me good and not harm. I want to have friends that bring me to the right place. I want to have friends that will come with me to the house of God. When he saw their faith, the first thing he said to the man was, Thy sins be forgiven thee. He wasn't anticipating that. Then he told that man to arise, take up thy bed and walk. As I've said many times, that man came there on his bed. He left there with his bed on him. Same thing right here. Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. Take up thy bed and walk, and the man's going to do that. The man heard what Jesus said. The man did what Jesus said. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, is a Sabbath day. It's not lawful thee to carry thy bed. The Jews had so many unwritten stipulations about the Sabbath day, and this is one of them. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. This reminds me of, of the man's language in John chapter 9, the blind man. Remember how the Lord gave sight to the blind man? And then the blind man had to deal with the Pharisees, had to deal with the opposition, about his eyes being open one thing or another, and they accused him of this, accused him of that. And you know what he finally said? He said unto them, This one thing I know. <laughs> Where I was blind, now I see. That's what I know. That's all he needed to know, wasn't it? <laughs> he knew a miracle took place. He knew this man gave him his sight. He said, this one, he said, will this man be a sinner or not? They said, this man's a sinner. Talking about Jesus. This man's a sinner for doing these things on the Sabbath day. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I know not. He said, but I know this much. Wherein I was blind, now I see. <laughs> this man says, basically the same thing. He's made whole. See, see, you don't have to be a, an expert in theology to stand your ground. All you got to do is tell your experience. You ever think about that? All you got to do is just tell people your experience. 
You don't have to debate in theological terms and theological language. You just tell what you know. What did this man know in John chapter 9? I was blind, now I see. That's all I need to know. Here's a man who says, I, I was, uh, you know, uh, I had this infirmity 38 years, and now I've been made whole. That's what I know. And you can just tell people, I tell you this, I believe in salvation by the grace of God because my experience tells me it's by grace or not at all. That's what I know. That's what I know. He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that that said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed, which not who he was. He still didn't understand this is Jesus. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Now notice, you know when you read over here in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Jesus never came to be the center of attraction. Jesus never came to be the star. Jesus never came for people to boast about him and brag about him. That's why you find from time to time when the Lord did a miracle, he would tell the man who gave sight to him, he says, go and tell no man uh, what has happened to you. Tell, he told the leper, go and tell no man. He told the man that was lame, only go and tell no man. And of course, generally speaking, the Bible says they went and blazed it abroad. They just went and told everybody. <laughs> I, you know, I can't blame them, can you? I just can't blame them. If I was totally blind and Jesus gave me my sight, if I was totally deaf and Jesus gave me my hearing, if I was totally lame and could not walk and was on the, on the bed, brother, and Jesus raised me up, if I was a leper and Jesus cleansed me, I'm telling you, I'd have to tell somebody. I'd have to tell somebody. Shame on me if I didn't. How could you not? And yet with one stroke of the amazing grace of God, God has done all of what I just said for you in a spiritual sense. With one stroke of God's grace, He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear and heart to understand. He gave you strength within your, uh, uh, you know, your, your spiritual ability to walk with God and to serve God. With one stroke of God's grace, he did all those things, my friends, at one time. And there's nothing in God's word that tells you that you can't tell people about it. Okay? He made himself with no reputation. He conveyed himself away. He just done something this man that nobody else could do. He just done something this man nobody had done for 38 years. After when Jesus found him in the temple. Where did he find him at? Found him in the temple. Found him in the house of worship. Found him in the house of prayer. That's where he went. That's where you're at today. That's what the temple represents today. You're in the temple. You're in the house of God. You're in the house of prayer. That's where you need to be. You need to be here. We go back to Psalms 100 in our closing thoughts this morning. Know ye the Lord. Know ye the Lord. He is God. It is He that has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people the sheep of his pastor, entering his gates with thanksgiving and his court with praise. For the Lord is good. His mercy 
is everlasting, and his truth endureth in every generation. He went to the temple and praised God. He went to the temple, I believe, with a heart of thanksgiving. He went there to honor Jesus. Went there to honor God. He still wasn't familiar exactly who Jesus was, but notice how it concludes. After Jesus found him in the temple and saith unto him, Behold, art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. That's kind of a stern admonition, wasn't it? The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. That's all he needed to say. <laughs> it was Jesus. What more can be said? Nothing really. It was Jesus. Jesus did it. He now knows it was Jesus that did it. Where did he get that information? He got it in the temple. Where do you get the most valuable information you're going to need in this life? It's going to be right here in the house of God, hearing the man of God preach to you the word of God, being with the people of God, in the house of prayer, in the, what the temple represented in that day. This man on that day started out like he had in so many other times. He probably was pretty hopeless. But I'm telling you, his day ended up on the mountaintop, didn't it? I, I just have to tell you, there's been lots of times that I have felt pretty low. But when I got to the house of God, when I left, I left a lot better shape than I was when I got there. I left stronger, I left more encouraged, I left more lifted up. I may have come with my chin dragging the ground, but I just floated out the door. Isn't that wonderful? That's what the presence of the Lord will do for you. The Spirit of God just lets you float right out the door and up them steps. I expect to see people get up there in that parking lot without taking a step this morning. Just going, they're like an escalator. They're just going to go right, right, right up the escalator.